Hey guys, what's up? The Godfather is here. Can I get a hi just to make sure that some people are hearing me? Can I get some kind of thumbs up or something on the uh, in the uh, chat box? What's going on? Okay, we. Anybody? Can somebody hear me? Are you there? What's happening? Give me something. We're here. Okay, perfect. So, uh, guys, don't forget, if you want me to read your questions and answer them, please make sure to super chat me. Uh, that would be great. Uh, okay, so we already have two donations. Thank you so much with questions. The first one from Subia Crothers. What do you think of homeschooling? Also, I have a high school freshman, and she is developing a person. What advice can you give me? Well, regarding the second one, have a read. Have a read this book. I answer your question fully. Uh, regarding the first one, you know, homeschooling has pros and cons, like most things in life. Uh, one of the pros, of course, is that you can uh, shelter your kids from the brainwashing and indoctrination at the indoctrination centers known as schools and universities. Uh, you know, if you have the ability to homeschool them, you know, you know, you know how to teach them trigonometry and uh, classic history and so on. Uh, then that certainly is a possibility. I think the downside is that it, it is important for kids to be socialized amongst their peers. There is all kinds of challenges that arise, even you know mild bullying and being picked second to last on the pickup basketball game. Those are things that are part of our de- developmental pathway. It builds resilience in us. And so, and plus, we, at some point, the hormones kick in and we want to be uh, exposed to people that we might be interested in. Uh, so, you know, it's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, yes, from a content perspective, you have control over what you're teaching your kids. But on the other hand, as I said, uh, it's maybe not always healthy for your kids to only be interacting with you. Even though, believe me, I have a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, I'd love nothing more than to have them stuck to my hips for forevermore. So thank you for that, Subaya Crothers. Uh, next question from Jean Ossis, mental hacker. Been saying for a long time that reality always comes back violently in our face. Looks like the tide is starting to turn against wokeism. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I think that there is certainly some encouraging evidence that things are slightly improving. Uh, have we completely turned the ship around? No. Uh, I would like it to, you know, to be... Uh, that, that they'd be in amelioration at a much faster rate. But this is really a long ideological battle, right? It took 50, 60, 70, 80 years for all of these idea pathogens to, uh, you know, be spawned on university campuses and then to be promulgated to every nook and cranny of society. And so I think there is a, you know, a, a long-term view of how we can turn. We have to win the culture wars, right? So even if you have someone like Donald Trump who comes in and who can shake things up, he's only there for four years or at best eight years. Now, it doesn't matter whether you like him or don't like him. I'm, I'm strictly talking about the wokeism stuff. He certainly was a doorstop against wokeism. But he's transitory. He comes in, and if he doesn't institute policies that then are long-lasting, then uh, it is all for naught. So... I, I am optimistic. I think that things are starting to shift. Look at, for example, all of the anti-critical race theory stuff that's been uh, developing all over the United States because of the work of some indefatigable folks like Christopher Russo. So 
there is a lot of cause to be uh, optimistic, but there's a lot more work to be done. Get engaged. Don't be silent. Don't diffuse responsibility to others. Activate your inner honey badger. All the things that I implored you to do in the parasitic mind. So thank you for that. Moving on to the next person. Keep those uh, super chats coming. Uh, Nick Vanderklok, do you think one's belief can be influenced by means of Socratic questioning and dialogue, challenging one's logic, pointing out the flaws and contradictions? Of course, uh, the Socratic method is a very important uh, persuasion tool, one that I often use. There's all sorts of different tools, some of which fall under the Socratic method, some that are uh, that do not. But the idea is that uh, you can use satire, as I do, uh, and sarcasm. You can use analogical reasoning. You can use empirical evidence. You can build nomological networks of cumulative evidence, as I explain in Chapter 7 of the Parasitic Mind. So there's a whole arsenal of persuasion weaponry that we can use, including the Socratic method, uh, in uh, trying to convince someone. But of course, all of these techniques only work as long as the, your your interlocutor is willing to listen. If they go, la, 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 I don't want to listen. Sorry, I think there's a ant that's crawling up my uh, my leg. Uh, I don't know if any of you have this in, in wherever you live, but the ant infestation when the weather is warm is unbelievable. So in any case, yes, Socratic method works, but it's only one of many tools. Thank you for that, uh, Nick van der Klok. Moving on to Milos Potic. Professor, what are your opinions on weed? Okay, I like that one. Uh, on a personal level, it may or may not shock you to know, uh, to hear that I have never, ever taken any drug, anything, uh, other than, for example, when I had a soccer-related surgeries where I, I was placed on morphine because of the pain. But, uh, you know, recreationally, I've never taken a single puff of anything. I've never dropped acid. I've never... Uh, you know, gone on an LSD trip. Um, and maybe Joe Rogan would say that I'm uh, losing out by not doing that. But uh, I've never done it, so I don't know. Um, you know, I don't have any personal experience about it. Uh, may, I don't know if your question is, what do I think about the legalization of marijuana? And that's often a, the question that I use to point out to uh, epistemic humility, the idea that when we know, we know, and when we don't know, we should have the humility to say we don't know. So, for example, when it comes to the pros and cons of uh, legalization of marijuana, I simply haven't done the requisite homework to be able to answer that uh, fully. So I, I really don't know. Uh, I don't know, for example, if weed, I've heard both that weed is a gateway for other drugs and others have said the opposite. So maybe one needs to build a nomological network uh, of cumulative evidence for that exact question. So thank you for that uh, question, Milos. Moving on to the next person. Uh, keep those super chats coming. Okay, we've got a a comeback from uh, Jean Rossis, Mental Hacker. Thank you very much for your second donation in one uh, seating. I identify as AOC's husband, <laughs> but she won't let me bang her. Okay, your words, not mine. What to do against this terrible discrimination? Should I try the Supreme Court? Uh, perhaps, although the Supreme Court might not be able to define what sex is, what male is, what female is, what intercourse is, because, you know, they're not sexologists, they're not biologists, so I'm not sure that the Supreme Court is the way to go. It turns out that they don't have enough expertise to pronounce what woman means. Uh, but yeah, 
AOC. I don't know if some of you saw the uh, the troll who intercepted her on the footsteps of the of Capitol Hill and who was kind of uh, you know taunting her with all sorts of uh, you know vulgar stuff. But anyways, thank you for that, Jean Rossis. Good luck with your pursuit of occasional cortex. Now, some people, by the way, have said, oh, there's another guy who has come up with the term occasional cortex. Well, that's great, but I don't give credit for someone else if I came up with it independently, but fine. If that guy came up with it before me, good for him. But I'm sure that I'm the first to come up with the malady of trans-brained. Trans-brained is when you self-identify as having a brain when your cranium is otherwise empty. And the first patient zero of transbrainism is occasional cortex AOC. So there you have it. Moving on to Cameron Bell. Thank you for your donation. Do you want to come with me to LAFC the next? Oh, now you, what the hell? Let me read that first and then let me castigate you here a bit or chastise you rather. Do you want to come with me to LAFC the next time you are in Los Angeles? I've had season tickets since day one. I was just, look Look at this gorgeous skin color. Look at it. Look at it. I was just in Southern California for five weeks. You couldn't have sent that message earlier. By the way, great story. One day we're driving back from uh, Oxnard. Uh, in I think it's in Ventura or LA County maybe. Uh, and, we, and we realized that there is the derby match between LAFC and LA Galaxy which I think it was the first year. This was just before COVID in 2020, I think, or 2019. I can't remember when it was. Uh, and uh, th- this derby match is now called El Trafico. And so I call my buddy Mark Garagos, the famous lawyer, and I say, Mark, hook me up with tickets. And uh, the lovely Mark Garagos found a way to download in my whatever the, the app for you know e-tickets tickets for myself, my children, and my wife, and we just made it in time for the the national anthem, which, of course, we turned our back and we didn't stand up because, you know, revolution. Uh, So, yeah, maybe uh, I'll first have to have my FBI special agent friend retired now check out that you're not some crazy person. And if I am in the area, I might just take you up on that offer. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Bell. That's a very sweet uh, offer from you. And as you guys know, I'm a big soccer fan, was a big soccer player. So nothing more, that, nothing better than to spend an afternoon watching great soccer. Bartolome Esteban Murillo, whose name I recognize. Thank you so much for your contribution. Good afternoon, Dr. Saad. Do you still get taken aback by the depravity of those who per, uh, purvey mind viruses? Uh, uh, on another note, hope Justina didn't shake you down at the airport. Uh, well, uh, I still have not recovered from the, uh, the the past shakedown, whereby 58% of my, of my money, my words, my ideas, my thoughts, my life history, my theories apparently don't belong to me. My brain, my personhood doesn't belong to me. Uh, so no, he hasn't yet attempted to sh- another shakedown, but I'm sure it's coming soon. Uh, am I taken aback by the depravity? Yes, even though I wrote The Parasitic Mind, so nothing should surprise me. I'm always surprised by the inability of people to think clearly, to think rationally, to think with reason. Uh, I just did a few days ago when I was still in California a clip on 
uh, a satirical clip, but but a real clip where I was uh, specifically discussing the 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 laughable position that the Democrats are the party of science, and then I list a whole bunch of positions that couldn't be any more anti-scientific and that are espoused by the Democrats. So yes, even though I am mired all day long in fighting idea pathogens, uh, it never ceases to surprise me how insane people are. Okay, guys, we have 116 people. Today, I gave you about a two-hour lead. I was walking with my son, and I was telling him, you know, I got to stop doing these, these ask me anything uh, impromptu. You know, you, you need to set it up. So, you know, every Monday, you do one so that people know, so they can expect to see you. But I'm just a spontaneous guy. So I thought maybe two hours will, will give people enough of a heads up. But so far, we're at 115. I'd love to be able to get to three, 400 people at least, if not thousands. Let's see if we can do it. Thank you so much, Mr. Murillo, for your question and comment. Nuclear now, solar later. No no question, just a hard. Yes, but, you know, nuclear, it's going to bring about the death. I don't know if some of you saw Michael Schellenberger. He, he, and I I retweeted it. This was a week or two ago. the amount of land that is required to be covered by solar panels to then be able to, you know, generate the right amount of power uh, corresponding to whatever. uh, It's just unbelievable. You have like these entire mountains that are utterly covered by solar panels. And of course, there are all sorts of uh, corrosive runoffs that, that happen with that. But that's natural, you see. So don't use nuclear. That's evil. It's mean. Uh, don't use uh, fossil fuels. That's raping Mother Earth. It's absolutely insane. It's unbelievable, the stupidity. So thank you for that. Nuclear now, solar later. Appreciate it. Nick van der Klook is back. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much for your uh, second contribution uh, for the day. About to start my thesis in September. Do you have advice for the students in this chat on how to write a masterpiece such as your books? Thank you very much. That's very kind. Well, I mean, it's that's that would take itself uh, you know, a whole lecture. Uh, number one, of course, have a topic that hopefully is is interesting that that, that that makes people say, "Hey, this is cool stuff." So, I don't know if you're asking how to choose a topic or how or how do you execute a writing style that's attractive. Uh, since I don't know your unique case, what you're talking about, it's hard for me to uh, you know to tell you if you're writing a. Uh, a thesis on uh, uh, old English and Chaucer of transitive verbs, well, that's great for insomnia. So it's going to be hard to uh, make that very exciting. No no offense to any Chaucer scholars. But, you know, the topics that I study, uh, you know, human behavior, uh, well, I'm doing a really, really bad job if I can't go on a show like Joe Rogan's and make it exciting, make it sexy. Now, even there, of course, people vary in their ability to communicate in a clear manner, in a succinct manner, in a charming manner, in a charismatic manner. Uh, some of that is innate, but there are certain skills that you can develop uh, in terms of how to be a good writer. I think I've released maybe two clips on my channel, The Sad Truth, where I talk about some of these tips uh, from my experience as a, as a, if I may say, a successful author. Uh, one of the most important ones is to have a good roadmap when you're writing. And what do I mean by that? Whenever you're reading something, so you're the reader, you're reading the parasitic mind, 
do you know where you are in the unfolding story? So do you know where I was coming from? And are you able to sort of start guessing where I'm going to head to? And to be able to do that, there are certain tricks, having good segues between paragraphs, having a good leading opening paragraph uh, sentence for a new paragraph, having segues between sections, reminding the, the readers where you are in the unfolding story. I think those are really important. Now, there is a difference between when you're writing scientific papers, academic papers, and you know the books that, that I write. When I'm writing an academic paper, the, the template of the structure of the paper is set, right? There's an introduction, there is a a statement of the research problem, there is a literature review, there is a statement of the hypotheses, there is the procedure, there is the you know the methodology, then there's the data collection and analyses, and then the conclusion. So how you fill these in varies across individuals, but the template is set. When you're writing a book, I mean the only template that you have at first is, you know, if if you've done a good job, you know, what each chapter is going to be about, what the subsections are going to be about. But even that changes organically so in in my latest book which i submitted to my publisher just before leaving to southern california in uh, late june third week of june uh many of the sections came came about through the process in other words you know here's a section on lottery winners and happiness that i hadn't uh thought a priori that I would have, but in my research, it came up. So it's a, it's a mixture of both organic stuff that happens while, while writing, but you really have to have a very good a priori roadmap of what your unfolding story is going to be. A, a good writer is a, is a great storyteller, right? So, uh, you know, when I'm writing my books, I'm thinking, okay, when I go on Joe Rogan, I'm able to, you know, uh, elicit the interest of millions of people. Can I write in that style? And if I can, then my book is likely going to be successful. So best of luck with your thesis, uh, Nick. Uh, it would have been nice to know what it's about, but uh, I'm sure you'll do a great job. Future Pilot Niner One, thank you for your uh, uh, donation. What would you advise a man to look for in a prospective wife, so, <laughs> supreme wokeism. No, I would. Uh, uh, my uh, my FBI, my special agent FBI friend who just recently retired was joking with me. Although he was being, I mean, he was being serious, but he was flippantly saying that whenever he meets a new person and is deciding whether they're going to be a prospective friend, he asks him the following question: How many sexes are there? How many genders are? There? And, if, and if anybody answers anything other than two. Then he says, oh, it's, it's really been nice chatting with you. And he moves on. So I would stay away from the woke because usually if they are woke, they come with a cluster of insanity that's associated with their, with their woke, wokeism. But regarding your first question, what would you advise a man to look for in a prospective wife? Well, I have a, a whole chapter in my forthcoming book, tentatively titled A Recipe for the Good Life, where I talk about the two decisions that are likely to impart the most happiness or misery. Uh, on your life. Number one, which mate you choose. Number two, which job or profession you choose for, for obvious reasons. So I won't get into all of the details of uh, what are some of the things that you should look for in a wife. But here's one thing that I can tell you. It, it might sound cliche, but it, it really isn't. Uh, and, it, and it's important for people to remember it because many people uh, go into a marriage uh, violating this dictum. 
you're ready, you're listening. Uh, you really have to marry someone who you can be, you know, your best friend in the long haul. Uh, there's all sorts of interesting research about the neural ana uh, anatomy uh, and the hormonal reality of love, right? So at first we have the butterflies, we have the lust, we have the libidinal drive. Not, not that we can't maintain that 10, 15, 20, 30 years into our marriage. Hopefully we're still sexually attracted to our partner, but that's not what's going to drive you over the, you know, that's going to carry you over the long run. What does carry you over the long run is if, uh, you know, you share similar values, similar beliefs, similar mindsets, if you're truly friends with each other. I, I love to spend time with my wife. She's my best friend. She happens to also be gorgeous. I'm very attracted to her. She's a beautiful woman. But it's not as though when I want to hang out with friends, it's not her. I go out with the boys. I love to be with her. We play sports together. We hang out together. We go walking together. So I think if you can find someone whom you're attracted to and who is your best friend, Charles Murray said that on one of my recent uh, shows. It was maybe six, seven months ago. And he was exactly spot on. Have a best friend who you're sexually attracted to. And I think you're on your way to success. Thank you for that question. Very important question. Uh, Future Pilot 901. Appreciate it. Chad Self is up next. Let me go to him. Oh, keep those keep those super chats coming. Gad, is there any truth to the rumor that as a college student you were frequently called <laughs> Mr. Lebanese Long Dong? Uh, I'm unable to. Uh, I'm under uh, a NDA, non-disclosure agreement, to answer that question but I appreciate your levity. There is some research that has, uh, I, don't, I don't know how they did the study, that ranked the, uh, the endowment of different cultures, uh, different ethnicities and so on. And uh, the Lebanese scored very nicely. Thank you for that question. Uh, Jorge Whitaker, hi there. Hi from Chile. Oh, Chile. I'm not going to hold it against you that in two Copa Americas where you had no business being in the final against a demigod of football, Lionel Messi, you played complete anti-football so that you can go into extra time, into penalty shots and win. Hey, kudos, you won on penalty kicks, but that wasn't exactly the most beautiful football. Uh, I won't hold that against you. Uh, great to see you from Chile. Have you heard anything about the new constitution proposed here? Where is here? Oh, in oh, in Chile, you mean. Is an unhinged mess of die politics, diversity, inclusion, equity. It will destroy this country if approved. Thanks, Chow. I have not heard about it, but wherever die goes, everything that is good dies. That's why I had changed the acronym to die in, in the parasitic mind, because Die principles is where meritocracy goes to die, where science-based thinking goes to die, where individual freedom and individual dignity go to die, where meritocracy goes to die. So there is only cancer when it comes to die. It is the destruction of every foundational value that has made the West the beautiful you know, set of societies that we've had over the past couple of hundred years, uh, Dias is systematically eradicating that. So if that's what's happening in Chile, I wish you luck. 
So thank you for that, Mr. Whitaker. Uh, Elston D'Souza, what are the biggest roadblocks you have witnessed in academia? Oh, boy. <laughs> Sorry, I saw someone write, Dr. Sad, I can't put in words how much I miss your badass beard. Really? But what about this? Your, what about the structure of the face, which you don't get to see if I have the beard? Uh, 95% of people prefer me with the beard, so I think the, the jury is, is set with that. But there were quite a few people who liked me without the beard, who thought I looked younger. But I think the beard will be coming back. It is, it has, it is a signature of my look for many, many years. So some people were completely freaking out when I shaved it. Uh, I, I shaved it because you know every year or two I like to clean my like clear my skin. I was going to spend quite a bit of time in Southern California. I thought that it would be a good thing to do. But once we now enter the hellhole known as Quebec slash Canada. I'm sure that the beard will be back. What are the biggest roadblocks you have witnessed in academia? Well, I mean, two, two. I mean, I've discussed this on many occasions, so I'll only briefly mention it here. And in a sense, the parasitic mind is all about that. Uh, of course, there's all of the idea pathogens that are destroying not only academia, they're, they're destroying the West bit by bit. And, and all those bad ideas start in academia. So that's one thing that's horrible about academia, all of the parasitic ideas. Okay, so that you, you know about. But I've always argued that independently of these, the wokeism, the idea pathogens, the, the postmodernism, the critical race theory, the identity politics, the political correctness, the, the uh, cultural relativism, the social constructivism, um, the militant feminism, all of these idiotic ideas. In addition to all that, Academia does not reward the intellectually bold. That's what it should do, right? Academics should be intellectual Navy SEALs, right? We don't pick Navy SEALs who are fat and lazy and who cry at the sound of thunder. That's not who we pick to be our Navy SEALs, our Army Rangers. We pick people, usually men. (gasps) I'm sorry, yes, they're men. Uh, We pick people who are athletic, courageous, bold. Well, academics should be Navy SEALs within the intellectual realm. They're not. They're invertebrate castrati. Invertebrate means they don't have a spine. Castrati means they have no balls. Whether they're male or female, they have no balls, metaphorically speaking, or maybe literally speaking. That's the problem in academia, is that it is exactly where innovation usually goes to die, where there are roadblocks where uh, be quiet and get along is, you know, it's careerist, it's safe. Yes, once in a while you have bold ideas, and I don't mean to, to argue that, you know, academia has uh, uh, has no longer any value. I mean, we, of course, we will always need universities to be places where we develop, uh, you know, the next breakthroughs in human knowledge, but not in its current instantiation. It has become... Uh, a, a careerist endeavor where most of the academics that I interact with have the intellectual ability of this case. They may know very much about a very narrow field, but they're not bold, they're not cultured, they're not intellectual. So that's what's missing in academia. in boldness, intellectualism. Uh, and of course, thirdly, I would argue that uh, the stifling bureaucracies completely destroy innovation. I mean, I'd rather not apply for a grant because I'm going to have to spend every 15 minutes 
filling out progress reports to 17 different agencies for a $100,000 grant. So the amount of time that I will spend managing the grant will be much more than the grant was worth. So get rid of bureaucracy, destroy bad ideas, remove careerist things, right? I mean, uh, what many academics end up being are just professional bullshitters. They, they know how to game the system to get their papers in, but they stay very safe. They play the game. You know, they become friends with the editors of the journals. I've never played that, right? I'm, I'm the bull in the China shop. You know, I've been calling bullshit all along. Of course, it has made me, if I may say, more influential and more famous than 99.9% of professors who've ever lived. But it has come at a cost in that I would have gotten even a lot more accolades in academia, uh, you know, had I played along. But I don't play along because I care about truth and freedom, and therefore, fuck them. All right, next. Thomas, Ger- oh, let me go back, uh, make sure that I didn't miss anything. Okay, keep those uh, super chats coming if you want me to answer you. Okay, I answered uh, Elston D'Souza. Uh, Thomas Jericho, thank you for your donation. In my experience, people are much more friendly and open to talk to in rural areas, quite the opposite of urban cities. Can you speculate why this is? Uh, I absolutely can. Uh, One of the things that I love about doing uh, these uh, Ask Me Anything, I think this is my sixth one now, live stream, is that it forces you to think quickly on your feet because you don't know what's coming at you. And that is fun. It's creative because... I don't know. You could ask me about wine or about weed or about how to pick your next spouse or about uh, with the question that Mr. Jericho just asked. And so that's that's really fun. It requires you to improvise, to be creative, to think quick down your feet. Look, uh, in rural environments, you are replicating the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, the EEA, which means what? We t- we've evolved in bands of no more typically than about 150. That's called Dunbar's number. Why 150? Because the idea is that that's the uh, computational limit of our cognition. In other words, our ability to remember whom we can trust and who's an asshole and who cheated on our last social contract. The upper limit is about 150. So many of the most effective organizations, a a military division, a a business division in a company, how many people you send uh, intimate uh, Christmas cards to, turns out it's about 150, which is a validation of Dunbar's number. But when you live in rural environments, everybody knows each other. Everybody knows each other's business. Everybody knows uh, that there's going to be repeat interactions. See, look now how I took an evolutionary principle and I'm applying it to a random question here. That's what knowledge allows you to do, to take your, if I may say, vast knowledge and apply it to different settings. So coming back to your question, Uh, Mr. Jericho, in the rural environments, people are friendlier because typically they have to be friendly because, you know, if you're rude to your next door neighbor and you you know that you're always going to be in this environment, the village where I was born is the village where my children are, where my grandchildren are, where my ancestors were, where where you're going to die and so on. So it, it teaches you to have this social lubricant of friendliness, right? On the other hand, the big anonymous city, there is no repeat interaction. When you go on the subway, you may, you know, 95% of the people that you run into on a given day, you may never run into again. And so that creates anonymity. It's because you are 
violating the social environment of the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness. And I, I talk about that briefly in some of my uh, previous books, and I, I re-mention it in my upcoming book, Recipe for the Good Life. So I think that's at the root of why you will find people being friendlier in rural versus urban areas. All right, thank you very much for that wonderful question. Uh, Bartolome Esteban Murillo is back. Thank you so much. Dr. Saad, do you plan to write a direct memoir? I found it poignant when you described first arriving in Montreal all those years ago. Thank you for that wonderful question. You know, I think I, I would love to. I mean, the idea certainly appeals to me because, you know, when I wrote chapter one of The Parasitic Mind, if you remember, that's really describing my childhood leading to our escape from Lebanon. And I remember my editor, my publisher, saying, my God, I mean, he knew as soon as he was reading that first chapter that the book was going to be a huge success, even though, you know, in later chapters, I still infused it with personal anecdotes. But, you know, it was, you know, it went outside of the memoir realm. But I really enjoyed writing that because there's something different about the process when you're writing your life story, right? You're, you're not going and referencing other stuff. You're not doing a literature review. You're just sitting there. It's your your experiences in your head that are being channeled through your fingers and that you're now sharing with people. And I found that exercise to be uh, a, a uniquely enriching one. Uh, so my answer would be, yes, I would love to consider writing a memoir. Uh, not sure when that would be. Maybe when, I've, when I'm a bit uh, longer in the tooth, as they say, but yeah, that's certainly uh, something that I've thought about. So thank you very much for that question. Uh, yeah, there you go. Nick, Va oh, hold on a second. I think I might have missed someone. Uh, okay, coming back to, oh, Nick van der Klook. Thank you, Klook. Uh, thank you so much. I think it's uh, donation number three. If everybody were as lovely and generous, maybe I can dedicate all my time to doing nothing but content creation. Uh, thesis topic, because I had asked, what is your thesis topic about? Using Socratic reasoning during crisis negotiations to change the mind of a suicidal person who is about to jump. Book recommendations? Question mark. Wow. First of all, what an incredible topic. So I'm trying to think uh, whether your use of the Socratic method or as you call it, Socratic reasoning here, in the context of, uh, you know, interacting with a suicidal person, uh, how that would jive with cognitive behavior therapy in the sense, I mean, yes, cognitive behavior therapy is a, is a, is a different beast. But by the way, Epictetus and the Stoics had pretty much uh, uh, predated uh, what we now have, what we now call CBT, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, right? Because what happens in cognitive behavior therapy? A person holds a certain set of cognitions, and then based on these erroneous cognitions, they engage in certain behavioral patterns that are deleterious. For example, you 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 keep choosing the wrong types of mates because you have wrong cognition about your self-worth. And so now you go into CBT with a therapist who's going to try to alter the structure of your cognitions so that that will result in downstream uh, alteration in your behaviors, right? And so and CBC, CBT has been shown to be a very effective uh, therapeutic method that has been tested scientifically, unlike a lot of the other bullshit 
therapies that happen within the uh, interaction between therapist and patient. Uh, so I don't know enough about, you know, how you apply the Socratic method in the context of suicidal people, although I can imagine. So I can't give you specific book recommendations. What I can tell you is that, and this is probably not relevant to what you're asking, I wrote, I think it was back in 2007, maybe. I can't remember the exact year. I think it was 2007. I published a scientific paper in a medical journal where I was looking at uh, ecological variables that affect the ratio of male to female suicide rates. So around the world, world record or world uh, data, men commit suicide at the rate of about three to one to women. So women are more likely to attempt suicide, but men are more successful at it. So one argument being that women use it as a signal for for help really they, they don't mean to go through with it really whereas men are really successful at committing suicide they, they blow their brains uh and so what i wanted to know is okay so globally the ratio is three to one but why does this country have a ratio of six to one whereas this country has a ratio of 2.1 to one what what causes these fluctuations in the male to female ratio and one argument that i was uh testing or the argument that I was testing is, are there certain evolutionary relevant variables that exacerbate that ratio? So, for example, loss of status or economic conditions, because men very much tie their their status to their you know economic power, and if they lose or if they see that their economic uh, prospects are diminishing, dwindling, are gone, are extinguished, then that of course puts a lot more pressure on them committing suicide. Now. Women will commit suicide for other reasons. So there are some interesting research, not my own, but other people's research that has looked at sex differences and motives for suicides. And, and these map very nicely along evolutionary lines. So I think it might be fun for you, if, if only to make your literature review a bit more you know, beefy, to have a small section discussing the Darwinian reasons for suicide. Because it, at, at first thought, it seems, well, how could this behavior ever be part of the repertoire of the human condition because the, the survival instinct is the most fundamental instinct that we have and yet people are saying i'm checking out screw survival i want out and so there are some interesting darwinian explanations for why suicide exists and i think if nothing else but to kind of as i said uh, make your literature more complete you might have a couple of sentences there to to discuss that so thank you for that uh, mr van der Klok. Uh, sounds like a really good topic. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Uh, Jainer Perez, or maybe Yiner, Yener Perez. What are the limits of freedom of speech given that beyond that going beyond its limit is what allowed to combat tyranny in countries like Cuba? Uh, so I don't know if you're referring to here the, the paradox of tolerance that Karl Popper has talked about. Do you tolerate? those things that are intolerant. Uh, and I, by the way, I, I, I quote the Popper's paradox in the parasitic mind. Uh, I'll answer the question in the following way. Uh, I've often said, and I'm happy to repeat here, that I'm a free speech absolutist in the sense that I don't think that you should not say things because it hurts people's feelings, because it may using 17 causal steps of bullshit causality, incite somebody to violence. Unless there is a direct incitement to violence, 
which that's not protected under free speech, I think anything goes. For example, falsehoods, lies, not defamation. So what are the conditions that I don't think freedom of speech is allowed? Defamation or libel, libel and defamation. Direct incitement of violence, right? You, you know, you can't organize a pedophilia group and say, oh, but that's just freedom of speech. Okay, so short of these provisos or special cases, anything goes in a free society. You're allowed to be a moron in a free society. You're allowed to be wrong in a free society. You're allowed to spread falsehoods in a free society. You're allowed to be a disgusting racist pig in a free society. That's the price you pay to protect freedom of speech. So there are no limits to freedom of speech as far as I'm concerned. We all step into the arena of, you know, to battle, the, 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 uh, the arena of to battle ideas and then may the best idea win via a Darwinian competition. So there you have it. Thank you, Mr. Perez. Moving on. Uh, Milos is back. Let me go back here a bit. Make sure that I'm not missing anybody. Okay. Yeah, Milos Potic, thank you very much for returning. Uh, I think you are missing out on not trying weed. Maybe next time you're on Joe Rogan. I can't contemplate a valid reason that justifies never trying it. Well, I've never been sodomized by three Turkish guys, and I don't have any desire to do it, even though I've never tried it. So I'm not sure that I uh, follow the logic of if you've never tried it, you know, how can you know and so on. There are many, many, many. There are more things that I've not tried than I've tried in life, and I've not tried them because there is a set of preferences that guide my choices. Uh, I don't like... Uh, Look, if I'm going to get psychoanalytical, I'm being completely speculative here, but I'm engaging in some self-reflection. I don't like being out of control, right? I don't like... Uh, now, although I have gotten somewhat tipsy. By the way, I only started drinking at the age of 23, and I was forced by fellow soccer players who found out that I had never drank. And I used to have very long hair at the time. I was kind of uh, the Lebanese Samson. So they jumped me. In, our, in the hotel, uh, in one of the hotel rooms, grabbed my ponytail, put a scissors, and they said, you either start drinking today or you're going to get a haircut. And that, that was the first time that I drank. Uh, so, you know, I just don't have any, I, notwithstanding the fact that I had put on a lot of weight, as you many of you know, I, I've lost a tremendous amount of weight over the past uh, year and a half. Uh, I don't really have any sins other than having put on weight. Uh, I I eat very healthily. I don't drink. I've never taken drugs. So maybe it comes from that. Maybe it comes from a pure, you know, pure, uh, purist bent. Uh, maybe because I've had health anxiety. Therefore, I don't like to take anything that, uh, you know, I'm not, I haven't evolved necessarily to take. Uh, so for all sorts of reasons, I haven't seen any benefit to it. But, but maybe you're right. Maybe I should try it. Maybe next time I'm on Joe Rogan. We'll smoke up together. Maybe it'll even be a better show than a, the usual show that it is. So thank you for that, Mr. Potic. Uh, erg no names. Hug, marry, slap. <laughs> I've had one of those once before uh, in the ask me anything stuff. I, I'm looking at myself here. I mean, God damn, look at that jawline. Are we sure we want to get rid of the? We want to bring back the beard? And this is me having maybe put on two, three pounds while on vacation. Uh, I mean, look at this jawline. All right. Uh, hug, Mary slap. Trudeau, 
Legault, who's the premier of Quebec, and Sam Harris. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Slap Trudeau. That feels right. Slap Legault. Slap Sam Harris? No. No. Oh, God. I can't imagine marrying Trudeau or Legault. I'm going to hug Legault out of pity. I'm going to slap Trudeau. For fuck's sakes, I'm going to marry Sam Harris, really? I guess that's that's what it is. All right. Elston D'Souza's back. Is Lebanon today the same as when your family fled? No, because Lebanon, you know, changes every 15 seconds. Uh, the Lebanon that I fled was mired in the most brutal civil war that's imaginable. Uh, you don't have that now, but you have the complete collapse of the financial system. So there are different challenges today from the, the, the time that I left. But I think what remains the same, and I hate to say this, and I apologize to my fellow Lebanese compatriots, what remains the same is the fact that the trajectory of Lebanon always remains dark. You'd like it to be optimistic, but there's so much corruption. There's so, so much tribal division. There are so many fundamentals that will always make Lebanon a, uh, a society on the brink of chaos and lawlessness. That's just... Now, of course, it has gone through many periods where that wasn't the case, but uh, there's just so much corruption. It's just unbelievable. So that's that. Omar Comics, thank you for your contribution. Is it possible to activate your inner honey badger without absolutely destroying somebody's feelings? Thank you. Uh, I mean, I think it is possible uh, because if you're... If I'm having a conversation with a, a, a friend and they say, what are you talking about? Women can have nine-inch penises. Well, I can either say, oh, sure, okay, I understand. I don't want to be transphobic. I could say, shut the fuck up. What are you talking about? How do men, how do women have nine-inch penises? And let me break it down for you. Uh, so on many, many topics, we can engage the positions that people take and hence, we can activate our inner honey badger without it hurting their feelings. But now, as I explained in The Parasitic Mind, I take a quote from my conversation, one of my conversations with Joe Rogan, where we were talking about, you know, uh, uh, that I don't believe in forbidden knowledge in science. There's, there is no academic question that is out of bounds. And then he said, but what if the knowledge that you, uh, I'm paraphrasing, what if the knowledge that you obtain through your scientific research hurts someone's feelings? And do you remember what my answer was? Fuck your feelings. So my point is that truth is the most important currency when you are an intellectual, when you are anything, right? A, a dignified life can't happen if you're not truthful. But, but to your point, in the parasitic mind, and many times since, I have made the distinction between consequentialist and deontological ethics. Consequentialist ethics is, for example, is it okay to lie? To spare someone's feelings. So that speaks to your question. The ontological is, it's an absolutist statement. It is never okay to lie. That would be the ontological. And of course, the reality is for many things in life, we should be consequentialist. The, the classic example I give is your spouse says, do I look fat in those jeans? Hmm. Let me put on my consequentialist hat and say, are you kidding, sweetie? You've never looked more beautiful than you are looking now. I might be engaging in a white lie, but I'm sparing my uh, partner's feelings. So in many cases, it makes sense to spare someone's feelings 
because you know protecting their feelings is more important than a small fib that you engage in. So that's consequentialism. But on big issues, truth with a capital T, nobody gives a shit about your feelings. All right, moving on. Sussy Chan, thank you so much for your contribution. Why do people tan their skin consciously? Has tan skin always been perceived as attractive in the, in the Western world? Well, as so many things in life, I've already written a scientific paper on that. You can go to a paper that I published in the journal Psychology and Marketing with a dermatologist where we looked at the evolutionary roots or the behavioral roots for suntanning, both natural suntans and artificial suntan sunbeds. I won't get into the, the whole conversation now, but not surprisingly, if you want to look at the demographics of those most likely to tan, they're likely to be single young women. And they're also likely to discount the future costs of suntanning, skin cancer, for the immediate benefits of, quote, looking good, right? I, I want to look good and radiant at tonight's party because Tony's there. And whether I get skin cancer when I'm 73, who cares? That's in a long time from now. I am immortal. I'm a young woman. Uh, and we also talk about, to your, to your question, why is it that suntans have become associated uh, you know, with health and so on. So some will argue that there's just an aesthetic glow, something nice when, you, when you've been exposed to the sun. Some have argued speculatively, but that uh, th there is some evidence to support that, that, you know, uh, in the past, having a tan was associated with, you know, working out in the fields and not having a tan was associated with, you know, you're, you're not uh, plowing the land. Later, it became associated with the leisure class. You go on vacation, you could take time to, to suntan, therefore you were high class. In some cultures, you whiten your skin because there's a correlation between social status and how dark your skin is. The lighter it is, the higher social status you are. So there are different evolutionary arguments uh, for why you tan or avoid tanning. Uh, but if you're interested, check out my 2006 paper, with Albert Peng, who is a dermatologist. There you go. Gray Bradbury, thank you for your contribution. What advice would you give someone with a degree in history, history struggling to find their way in this woke world? That's kind of a vague and broad question because, you know, is your implication saying that you have a history degree that you'd, you'd like to do something in history? Uh, is it you're asking, what can you use history for? Uh, I mean, if you want to stay in history, then short of getting a PhD in history and becoming an academic, a historian, then there is no direct, right? There is no field, there is no profession that is looking for a BA in history. But, you know, oftentimes people will study history as a stepping stone to then going on and getting a law degree. They'll study political science or history or journalism uh, before going on as I said, to get a law degree. So it's hard for me to answer your question. I don't know enough about you and about your passions and about your interests to, to offer that, to offer you a, a succinct and poignant answer. What I can tell you, which is something that, as I mentioned earlier, I spoke about in The Parasitic Mind, another Parasitic Mind, the next book, uh, A Recipe for the Good Life, when I talked about you know the two important decisions that you make that either impart happiness or misery upon you, choosing the right spouse choosing the right job it's going to sound uh cliche-ish but again it really isn't it's actually quite a deep point you really have to choose something that you're passionate about that gives you a direct trajectory to purpose and meaning 
I'm happy dispositionally. Luckily, knock on wood, I'm just a happy person. I'm, I'm jovial. I'm, I like to have fun. So I wake up every morning, you know, feeling good. Thank the cosmos. But beyond that, I'm also a happy person because I do wake up next to my wife, whom I love very much. And because what I pursue professionally brings me great purpose and meaning. When I'm teaching students and I see the light go in their eyes when I'm talking about you know how you apply evolutionary psychology and understanding human behavior, that gives me a high. When I write an academic paper, that's a beautiful paper that's going to be cited by many people, that, that gives me a high. When I write uh, my, these books that are read by hundreds of thousands of people that you know that I know that they're enjoying when they take my book on some trip to Dubai and I receive photos of them on the beach reading my book, that's a wonderful feeling. It means you're doing something interesting. But not only for that, the process, so here's I'm going to come to the secret sauce. The process of creating gives you purpose and meaning. So in my case, I create papers. I create books. I create content like we're doing now. In this case, I'm creating a dialogue with with fans. The, the act of creating is probably undoubtedly the most direct path to finding purpose and meaning. So now I don't mean just intellectual creation. If you're a chef, you're creating. Before you give that dish to someone, when they're going to experience that for the next 10, 15 minutes, they were just disparate ingredients. And then through the, the magic of the culinary art artistry of the chef, you have this beautiful dish. Painters create. Playwrights create. Filmmakers create. Architects create. Professors create. So there are many, many routes to creation. So don't get me wrong. I don't mean that it's either intellectual creation or else it sucks. Many, many creations. But all other things equal. A person who is in the creative space is going to be happy, all other things considered. Uh, being an insurance broker or an accountant or, uh, I don't know, a manager of a retail store, I'm not denigrating those fields. We need those people. Every honest job is an honorable job, but they're not in the act of creating. They're managing, they're executing, they're bean counting, they're bookkeeping. So they're not creating. So as long as you're in the process of creating, I think... Uh, that's one very, very direct path to happiness. Good luck, Mr. Bradbury. Moving on to Cavino 2500. What are your thoughts? Uh, thank you for your contribution. What are your thoughts on hypnosis? You know, I don't know enough about it, to be honest with you. Uh, I truly believe that I'm one of those people. You know how there, there are individual differences in people's proclivity to fall, you know, to be hypnotized. I truly believe that I'm one of those that would be able to set up there, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know enough about it. When I've seen those footages where, you know, a hypnotist is able to hypnotize a whole crowd, one person thinks he's a chicken, the other person thinks he's a guitar and so on. I've always wondered if that's real or it's made up or if it's just some orgiastic form of suggestibility. I, I don't know. So uh, my sense of epistemic humility uh, might not make you happy, but I simply don't know enough about hypnosis to be able to say under which conditions it works or doesn't. Now, of course, there's a tradition of hypnosis in the therapeutic fields and in, in, in clinical therapy. 
some swear by it, some think it's a bunch of quackery, uh, some think that hypnosis is used to uh, implant false memory into patients, uh, whereby the, the, the nefarious therapist will now convince you that your parents were a, a Satanist cult and they were gang raping you. There's been these incredible cases in the uh, early 90s, if I'm not mistaken, it's called the false memory syndrome. Uh, and a lot of those came through hypnosis. So I, you know, if I'm going to fall on one end or the other, I'm going to say that hypnosis, whether it's quackery or it's used for nefarious, has more negatives than positives. But that's that's the extent of my knowledge. All right, moving on. Cameron Vasey, thank you so much for your contribution. I have a copy of The Parasitic Mind I purchased. have yet to read it. Get your life straight. You have a copy of my infinite wisdom and you've chosen every day not to read it that's a parasitic mind not reading the parasitic mind is a symptom of being parasitized i'm just kidding uh okay j jbp jordan peterson has come out swinging lately uh yes do you feel the tide might be turning on north american sickness and the abuse of children uh, of, the, of the the i'm guessing you're saying the abuse of children uh well, I kind of answered that question earlier in this thread. Uh, yes, I do think that the tide is starting to turn. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, a classic example of that is the empowerment that many parents are now uh, uh, feeling when they attend one of those um, school board meetings where all of this bullshit, uh, critical race theory is being taught. Uh, so... People are starting to wake up. People are starting to speak out and speak out, but not at a fast enough rate. Uh, that's why I, in chapter eight, I talk about activating your inner honey badger because once people find their spines, once people grow a pair and say, no, 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 you can't, you can't do twerking uh, with drag queens as part of reading to six-year-olds. That doesn't make me transphobic or not an LGBTQ ally for not wanting to have my children see drag queens twerking while they're, while they're learning their ABCs. So people have to feel empowered. The silent majority hates all this bullshit, but people are cowardly. People are not self-assured about whether they stand on the right side of a position and therefore they equivocate. They suck their thumbs in a fetal position. They cry in fear. But what if my boss finds out that you know, I don't like BLM. Well, you know, we all have to live with our actions or inactions. Uh, and so if the silent majority were to speak up in unison, I think the world looks very optimistic. But if we stay quiet, we equivocate, we're cowardly, then these idea pathogens are only going to continue to flourish. Thank you very much, Mr. Vasey. Moving on to the next person. Oh, I missed a few. Let me go down here. Keep keep those uh, super chats coming. Thank you, everyone who is contributing. Okay, right, let me go here. Drew McTighe. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. <laughs> Fantastic question. Uh, what's your favorite dinosaur? You know, I don't know enough about the different types. Of course, the one that seems the most ominous is T-Rex. So... Because I like fierce things, I, I love Belgian shepherds because 
boy, they are living dinosaurs in terms of their ferocity, uh, try to approach me when one of my Belgian shepherds is with me. Good luck. Uh, so I'm going to say T-Rex, if only because that's sort of the one that was top of mind. But thank you for that very creative uh, question. All right, moving on to Linda Rainier. Love listening. Thank you. It's You don't know how fun it is. Like today, by the way, I haven't checked my emails in five and a half weeks because I went away. The best way f- to reduce my stress is to, even though I was active on social media, I was checking things. I did a few sad truth clips, but, you know, not, you know, being, you know, every, you know 5,000 times a day being prompted by someone with a request or whatever is a way to vacation. And I haven't gotten around to checking my emails. So today I said, okay, today, Friday, July 29th, that's it. I'm going to muster all my courage and get into those emails. And then, you know, I wasn't ready yet. Maybe at some point next week, we'll see. Uh, And then I said, okay, well, I want to be creative. I want to do something productive. Hey, let me go ahead and do an Ask Me Anything. So thank you all for coming. Only 214 people. Why am I not getting 20,000 people here? What's going on? Maybe I need to have this on a regular basis at a, a scheduled time. Maybe more people will uh, schedule you know, their time with me that way. Uh, so love listening. Thank you. I love doing this. I wrote a novel based on world mythology. And what is your take on the connection between myths and human experience? Beard is fire. Okay. So beard is fire. Sorry, I don't, I'm not sure I understand the lingo. Beard is fire means you like me better with a beard, correct? And that's fine. That's fair. Uh, what do I think of mythology? Look, uh, I guess we're going to enter here some of the Jordan Peterson territory, although he's hardly, you know, the first mythologist. Uh, or I mean, Carl Jung, of course. Uh, Carl Jung spoke about, uh, you know, mythology and so on. Uh, the archetypes and all that. Uh, mythology is great to the extent that it offers us something about our sh- shared human nature, right? So I argue in several of my books, in this book, The Consuming Instinct, and in this book, The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, that cultural products are fossils of the human mind, right? Why? Because paleontologists, look at the segue with the earlier question on dinosaurs. A paleontologist reconstructs the phylogenetic history of a species by looking at the skeletal remains, at the fossil record. And they're able to tell you how they mated, whether they were herbivores or carnivores or omnivores. They can get into very, very details and specifics by studying fossil record and, and the fossils and the skeletal remains. But the human mind doesn't fossilize. It's organic. But what does fossilize, as I argue in these two books, are the cultural products that are left behind. They are fossils of our shared human nature. Well, one such cultural fossil are world myths. And, of course, if you now add this in your book, I better receive the proper citation and attribution or I'll know. So so mythology is great to study, at least as an evolutionist, because it really is a window to understanding our shared human nature. So there are many myths that evolved in many different parts of the world at different time periods that are hauntingly similar. Why? Because the underlying substrate of those myths say something about our shared human nature. So from that perspective, I think uh, world mythological 
mythologies and folkloric stuff is something uh, beautiful to study. So thank you for that question. Moving on. Luis, Luis Gomez, thank you so much for your contribution. Is this say your pronoun will, oh, will I need to list my pronouns? Okay, so this question is, is this pronoun sadly going to exist forever? No, it won't. When enough people say, bullshit, I'm not listing my pronouns, it will just go away. The reason why it happens is because there is an asymmetry between those who are pronoun activists, the administrators who are afraid of the blue-haired Taliban, the pronoun activists, and then the silent majority who says, I don't want any trouble, I'll do whatever, because I don't have any balls, I'm too weak, I don't have a spine, so whatever you tell me, I'll do. I just don't want to be, I don't want to be in trouble. The minute that people say, sorry, I'm not listing my pronouns. Sorry, I'm not a cisgender male. I am male. My wife is not cisgender woman. She's a woman. My son and daughter are a boy and a girl. They're not cis boys. They're not cis girls. Fuck off with that stuff. So this, now, by the way, don't get me wrong. As a default value, I'm kind. Someone comes to me and says, oh, please, if you're going to address me, address me by this uh, pronoun. I'm going to go out of my way to abide. Why? Because in that case, the the social contracts of, of being polite and kind to someone is, is, is the way to go, right? So the position that I take has nothing to do with being transphobic. I get a million letters from transgender people who say, thank you very much, you're my hero, blah, blah, blah. So any person who has a functioning brain knows that there is zero bigotry in, in, in me. I mean, I don't, I don't give a shit whether you're, you self-identify as this or that. I'm going to be polite and respect you. But don't spread stories like boys to menstruate. Don't have tampons in boys' locker rooms for menstrual equity. Don't force me to list my pronouns. So as I explained in my appearance in front of the Canadian Senate, I can respect you without you require me that I go down the journey of celebrating your unique personhood. I don't give a shit about your unique personhood. You've got yours. I've got mine. Let's move on. So there you go. So I do think that this pronoun stuff will go away, but it will only go away when people say, you can't force me. And I mean, that's what made Jordan Peterson originally famous, right? It's because he took a position against the likely compelled speech that would come with gender pronouns. And by the way, for those of you who, didn't, who don't know, Jordan Peterson had reached out to me to come on my show before anybody knew him. And he said, hey, my name is so-and-so. I'd love to come on your show to chat. Uh, so, uh, And then I, of course, I was you know, the only academic who had the courage to speak to such a dangerous guy. Then we became friends and, you know, I, I connected him with other people and so on. And of course now he's stratospheric and it's great. Uh, so he had courage. What made Jordan Peterson go from, you know, I mean, he was, he was an obscure academic, not so well known. Uh, and now of course he's a cultural icon. The number one reason is because he's got courage. Yes, of course he's very bright. But more importantly than that, you could be as bright as you want. There are many professors who are bright. They'll never reach Jordan's influence because he speaks his mind. Sometimes he may be wrong, but he lives his convictions. And for that, many people resonate with him. 
So love you, Jonah. Uh, all right. Christopher Robbins, thank you so much for your contribution. Uh, has this phenomenon made you question the need for religion in society? Has this phenomenon, which phenomenon? Uh, the pheno are you talking about wokeism or well, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Maybe you can write again uh, and I'll be able to, if I see it, I'll be able uh, to answer you. So I don't know. Uh, so I'll answer the, since I don't know what you ref, what you mean by this phenomenon. Let me answer the question more generally. Do I think that there is a need for religion in society? So I, as I've explained before, even though I'm not a religious person, I understand why most people need to be religious. In other words, I understand the functional benefits of religiosity. And even though I'm not religious, but I am an evolutionist, I am a someone who understands human behavior and human needs. And I don't think we'll ever uh, get rid of religion because we have this big prefrontal cortex that realizes that the party is finite and therefore most of us don't like the idea that the party is finite. We'd like to think that we are immortal. We'd like to think that the party will go on in some other realm. And therefore, if only because of that, never mind the other functional benefits that religion offers us, once I swallow that religion pill, I'm going to see my dog Roscoe again and my uncle Jim Bob, uh, whom I loved very much. I don't know why I'm choosing names from Arkansas and the Deep South. But anyways, uh, so religion will always be there. There you go. Robert Atkins, thank you so much for your contribution. What is your thoughts about spanking children? Wow, what a great question. Uh, I'm of two minds. It depends what we mean by spanking. Uh, I certainly came uh, of age at a time where spanking was a lot more. Uh, you know, beating the shit out of a kid, uh, no. A little, uh, in other words, is it the case that any form of spanking is a no-no because the Freudian argument that you're going to damage the kid forevermore? No, I don't think so. Uh, my parents uh, didn't spank me. I don't spank my children. But I'm not, you know, uh, fully uh, willing to say that under no circumstances does some physical punishment. And, I, and here I really mean light. It's, in other words, it's one whereby you are uh, imposing your parental authority on the child more than actually imparting, you know, any possibility for physical pain. It's right. It's right. It's you do the same. It, it's it's when uh, uh, the dog whisperer, you know, gives a a, a a rigid tap to the dog to get him out of his, you know, fixation. So, so I'm not willing to say that no form of uh, physicality is, is is appropriate, but it, again, it has to be within uh, limits. Uh, no, no physical intervention should ever cause any kind of uh, serious pain to to a child. You know, pulling out your belt and starting to viciously, you know, beat a child. No, but you know, going on his backside and you know hitting him three times symbolically, uh, I can see that being. Uh, for some people, okay. All right. Nick van der Kloek is back. Wow, thank you so much. Dear God, thank you so much for your previous advice for the thesis. My pleasure. 
could you maybe elaborate a bit on the evolutionary explanations behind suicide? Well, there are the most. I'll just give one. Uh, the most, uh, if you want, other than you know, you can. If you do the literature review, you'll get the whole thing. Uh, the classic argument comes from a group selectionist perspective. Imagine that you're uh, you're part of a tribe and you're the slow, weak one, elderly one, too weak to keep up with the speed at which the tribe is moving, and then the predators are starting to loom and catch up. Maybe if you give yourself up so that others so that others can live, that might be uh, the way to go. So one argument, it, it's speculative, so I'm not willing. That's why I kind of hesitated. I'm not willing to put my whole evolutionary imprimatur over that explanation. But one argument is that it is one of several possible group-selected strategies whereby you can give yourself up for the benefit of the group, many of whom are genetically linked to you, so you could still be increasing your inclusive fitness even though you are here dead and others uh, survive. So that's the, 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 both the evolutionary roots of homosexuality and the evolutionary roots of suicide, both of which are, if you like, Darwinian dead ends, Darwinian cul de sac, because, you know, if you, let's say you're a, you're a exclusive homosexual male who, who never has an intention of mating with women, then of course the genes end with you. And similarly, if you kill yourself, there goes your, your genes. Certainly, if you, you haven't had children yet. So, many times when people want to get sassy with me at some conference when I'm talking about evolution and stuff, they say, Oh, yeah, well, if everything is adaptive, which of course is not, uh, how do you explain homosexuality? How do you explain suicide? So, what I would say, so I gave you the most common evolutionary explanations for suicide. Uh, there are a few others. All of them are definitely not definitive. Many of them are quite speculative, uh, but yeah, so there you go. Uh, David Lachter, thank you so much for your contribution. Hi, Dr. Saad. I'm very passionate about Dr. Peterson's work in exploring the substructure of self-evidence. Okay, I'm not sure I understand what that means. Uh, from your point of view, what value would Dr. Peterson appreciate in someone reaching out to him? Uh, I mean, the challenge is simply for him to have enough time to answer all the people who reach out to him. So as someone who faces a similar problem, I receive, you know, if I count all of the messages I receive in a given day, whether it be through emails or through Instagram messaging or Facebook messaging or Twitter or this or that, you know, uh, I'm bombarded with thousands of messages. I can't answer everybody. If I look now here, I only answer the people on Super Chat because, well, they were kind enough to 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 donate, to, to monetize my time, right? But it's a way of screening out. There are there are hundreds and thousands of people who are writing now messages or thousands of comments that people are writing. I don't I can't read them. So I have to use a filtering algorithm. So I can't tell you, uh, I don't want to be pessimistic or, or dissuade you, but the, the likelihood that he would respond is, is small, not because he's unlikely to be interested in what people have to say, but because he is inundated with messages. But, you know, you, you, you're welcome to take a shot. Thank you, Mr. Lacter. Uh, M. Monty, just a donation. What a lovely thing. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
Bartolome Esteban Murillo is back. Thank you so much. Uh, do you think patience is a must for an intellectual Navy SEAL? I saw a video of Dr. Sowell in the 1980s trying to reason with Joe Biden and not losing his cool. Have a good night, Dr. Sat. Uh, you know, yes. So sometimes, so many people will write to me and say, my God, you've got the, the patience of a saint. And then other people will say, what are you talking about? You're not patient. I see when you go after someone on Twitter. But what you don't realize is that when I go after someone on Twitter, it's because I have been inundated with a tsunami of bullshit for 24 hours a day for four months before I kind of uh, will, you know, roll up my sleeves and go after someone. Uh, I think it does take patience. Usually when I lose my patience is when I see that the person with whom I'm interacting is a bad faith actor. So it's not so much that I lose patience in the process of trying to engage someone or trying to convince someone that their position might be wrong and they might want to look at it a different way. I always come to these interactions with the optimism that most people are redeemable, even when they are strong, strong ideologues. When I lose patience, it's because, you know, you're just an asshole. You're being impolite. You're, you're, you're insolent. You're obnoxious. You're insulting. Uh, you're dogmatic. There's no way to get to you. You shift the goalpost. So I see that you're a bad faith uh, interlocutor. And then that's when oftentimes I'll then say, okay, let me stop being sweet and let me just, but even by the way, when I engage in, you know, uh, repartee with someone on Twitter, and where I'm, you know, I'm insulting them as a castrato or whatever. I, I'm always doing it with a with a smile on my face, with with with, with twinkle in my eyes. In other words, I don't I don't take these interactions so seriously. Not because we're not talking about important stuff, but because I'm just having fun with some moron on Twitter. But generally, yes, if you want to convince people, uh, doing so, you know, with grace and patience uh, is certainly a way to go. So thank you for that, and and a good night to you too. Elston D'Souza, thank you for coming back. Are evolutionary hypotheses empirically testable? So here's my patience. I'm going to be patient and say, yes. Why am I being patient? Because this is probably the 94th millionth time that I hear this question. And doesn't matter how many times I explain it, someone else will come along and say, but bruh, Evolution, unfalsifiable. Nothing can be further from the truth. An evolutionary hypothesis is just a hypothesis. Just like astrophysicists posit a hypothesis of a process that happened 16 billion years ago, they say if the universe is expanding, we should see this data. If the universe is contracting we should see this data let's do, run some observations and then it will either falsify our premise or not the exact same thing happens with evolutionary principles the fact that i or you weren't there to see evolution happen doesn't mean that a evolutionary based hypothesis is untestable and i'm not please don't think i'm saying this to you because i know you're asking it with all humility the person who says that is one of the most egregious moron. Because many of the most important sciences where we originate from, astrophysics, where we originate from, evolution, 
are historical sciences. Oceanography is historical. Paleontology is historical. It has historicity. Geology is historical. Earth science, which is geology, is historical. Evolution is historical. Astrophysics is historical. So the fact that you are positing hypotheses about events that happened in a distal past doesn't make them unfalsifiable. So let me give you an example. I propose the hypothesis that says that because men have a preference for the hourglass figure and it's a near universal and there are evolutionary reasons why men have that preference, when if we do an analysis of the types of body types that online female escorts are going to advertise, it's going to fit the hourglass figure. So therefore, I'm going to propose a hypothesis that says that around the world, from a, a bewildering number of cultures, when women advertise their sexual services online, I'll expect their waist-to-hip ratio to be in a very specific place, 0.68 to 0.72. There is nothing fucking unfalsifiable about that. As a matter of fact, it's so unbelievably falsifiable. If you collect the data and the data doesn't fall within this very tight narrow of 0.68 to 0.72, you falsified the hypothesis. So, but if you collect the data from a bewildering number of cultures and it turns out that the average waist-to-hip ratio advertised from online female escorts falls within that range, then you've demonstrated that your, your hypothesis is valid, right? So there is nothing unfalsifiable about evolutionary mechanisms or evolutionary hypotheses. You're simply using a causal chain of argumentation to then arrive at a final hypothesis, which is very specific, which should either be falsified or not. As a matter of fact, as I explain in The Parasitic Mind, in Chapter 7, evolutionary scientists use nomological networks of cumulative evidence to demonstrate that something is an adaptation. So if anything, evolutionary hypotheses are more falsifiable than all other sciences. Yet moron after moron after moron says, but bruh, evolutionary psychology, fake science, right bruh? No. To demonstrate that something is an adaptation, you get data from across cultures, across time periods, across methodologies, across animals, across paradigms, across procedures, all of which triangulate to demonstrate that your hypothesis was correct. So it is the opposite of unfalsifiable. They are profoundly falsifiable. The fact that they are not falsified, it's because they're true, right? So here's another example. If you want to know the pattern of sex differences within a species, Simply look at the minimal obligatory parental investment of each sex. This is known as parental investment theory. It was proposed by Robert Trivers. Meaning, in most species, the minimal obligatory parental investment is greater for females than it is for males. So what happens in those species? The females are smaller. 
the females have less testosterone. The females are more sexually coy and sexually choosy. Why? Because making a wrong mate choice looms larger for females. Now, there are a few species where the opposite is true, meaning males provide greater minimal obligatory parental investment. What do you think happens in those species? Every single sex difference is reversed. Males are smaller. Males are sexually coy. Males are more sexually choosy. Males are less interested in indiscriminate sex. The females are bigger, more sexually aggressive. Therefore, we take two million species and test this hypothesis. And if it passes two million species, and hence it wasn't falsified, it's because my God is the data clear. So there is nothing epistemologically unfalsifiable about an evolutionary theory. Now watch, I just explained this. Someone should cut this, post it in every medium so that that idiotic statement goes away. But guess what? The phoenix will arise. I will get some colleague of mine who will denigrate me and say, you study evolutionary psychology and human behavior and consumer behavior. That's just bullshit science. That's fake. Yeah, right. That's fake. That's why I get paid the big bucks by companies to help them, moron. So thank you, uh, uh, Mr. D'Souza. Evolutionary science is the most rigorous of all sciences. That's why Charles Darwin is the most important scientist who's, who's ever lived, more important than Albert Einstein. And Monty, what would be your opinion on the 1968 Calhoun experiment, Universe 25, in comparison with today's Western society in the age of decadence? I have no idea what 1968 Calhoun experiment, Universe 25, means. I don't know if I'm supposed to know what that is. So unfortunately, and with all due deference, I don't mean to disappoint you, uh, I can't answer that because I have no idea what that is. Maybe I'll have to look into it. Sorry about that. Show. Oh, let me go back. Let me go back. Let me go back. I missed a bunch of people. Hold on. Keep those uh, uh, things, uh, super chats coming. Show Sugino. Thank you for your contribution. If dreams and nightmares no longer seem to matter, when then who shall remind them, O Bard? What? Okay. Is this a haiku? Is it an LSD trip? I don't know what that means. I, I'm not a poetry guy. If dreams and nightmares no longer seem to matter, then who shall remind them, O Bard? I'm stumped. I have no idea what that means. O Bard? I don't know what that means. Are you ref? I don't know. I'm stumped. My apologies, show Sugino, but speak to me in a more direct way. Uh, I don't understand poetic language. All right, moving on. Gary Brovetto, just a donation. Thank you so much. You're very kind. Let's move on. Are you on Rumble, Dr. Saad? That's actually not. Uh, uh, I've been in discussion with them to sign a contract, so hopefully I will be soon. Let's see. Okay, moving on, moving on. Thomas Jericho. Hi there again. I appreciate, I think it's again, I think you were there earlier. I appreciate your recurring comedy bits such as blue haired wigs, the Aslan Duker decoder, and whenever you say bruh, keeps up, keep up the last. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, 
I despise the following position, which, by the way, is held by 99% of fellow academics. They mistake. Um, look at the explanation I gave you just a few minutes ago, just a minute or two ago, about our evolutionary hypotheses uh, unfalsifiable or not. That sounds pretty professorial to me, right? I've published a million academic papers, been cited a million times, invited to all the top universities, so I don't exactly score low on a professorial prestige. But I don't confuse that or I don't conflate that with also being a well-rounded person who's down to earth, who's actually humble, who millions of fans come up to me, I chat with them and we take selfies and we shake hands and I sign their books and it, right? I, I don't, I can be a very serious person and very professorial and also laugh at things and laugh at myself and have the courage, the, the personhood courage to don the, the wig, right? Other professors don't have that sense of self because I don't give a shit, right? I truly am the ultimate honey badger. Because of my strong sense of self, I don't feel that I'm going to diminish myself by being funny, by being a joker, right? I get millions of people who come up to me and say, oh my God, you're under the desk stuff. It keeps me and my wife laughing for two hours. When I, when, when I, when Megan, Megan Kelly came on my show, the, she, she opened up the show by saying she sits with her husband talking about which of my funny bits they each prefer. Okay. Humor is important. Humor is one of many ways by which we break through the clutter of bullshit. So I use it very strategically. I mean, it's just part of me. I'm just a fun guy. But it also requires, if I may say, a lot of intelligence. Dave Chappelle is more intelligent than most of my colleagues. That's why he gets paid $20 million for a Netflix show. Because it takes tremendous oratory skills and tremendous astuteness and tremendous intelligence to do the stuff that he does. So thank you for appreciating my humor. And to all of the professors who are simply too highfalutin, right? Who are too profound to joke around, F off. All right, moving on. Luis Gomez, thanks. My pleasure. Moving on. Azimut Enigma. Gad, have you changed your stance on the COVID jabs? You know, I, I haven't only because, look, it's very, very hard to be an expert on everything, right? So when you go see the mechanic, you don't say to yourself, let me do all of the work that would allow me to know when he says, we, you need to change the 606 carburetor to the 702 I have no clue what he's talking about. And therefore, I subcontract via trust that task to him or her because they're supposed to know what they're talking about. If you were to stop and say every single medical decision that you're asked to do, I understand the intrusion of forcing people to take the jab, and I don't feel good about that. But where would that end, right? If someone says, here is... You know, you should take this uh, statin for your cholesterol. Should I say, oh, fuck off these physicians and epidemiologists. What do they know? I know better. So if you're asking me, do I think it should ever be the case for the government to mandate and the overreach that they've done? Absolutely not. I think it's grotesque. I think it's wrong. I think it's beyond Orwellian. If you're asking me, do I think the evidence is there that from a cost-benefit Taking the vaccine is better than not taking it. I haven't done the homework, 
but I'm trusting that the totality of evidence suggests that for most people, taking it has more benefits than cost. That's all I could say. I don't know any more about the, the, the matter. Uh, Mother June, thank you for your contribution. After the emergence of all these new societal issues, do you still hold the belief that Islam is problematic in the West? Can Islam be reconditioned to be a permanent part of the West? Uh, well, I've talked about this on many occasions. Whether Islam is consistent with Western values is independent of all the other issues that exist. That could be judged independently. Muslim people, for the large part, are lovely people, just like any other group. Okay? They are nice Jews and really shitty Jews. They are really nice Muslims and really mean Muslims. Muslims were trying to kill us in Lebanon, and Muslims, Muslims saved us in Lebanon. Yes? Okay. Does Islam, as a set of principles, is it consistent with the foundational values of the West? No, nothing could be clearer. You understand? Does Islam contain elements that are perfectly lovely? Yes. That are spiritual? Yes. Is political Islam part of Islam? Yes. Is political Islam a problem? Yes. So you have to understand the issues and then you can make a pronouncement. So uh, is Islam... Hostile towards the kafir, nothing could be clearer. Read chapter 7 of the parasitic mind, where I build a nomological network of cumulative evidence answering the question of whether Islam is peaceful or not, and then judge for yourself. So Muslims, they're just as lovely or not as any other people. Islam has a certain set of codes, principles, and tenets that are lovely, and they have others that are very, 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 very problematic. And then the issue is, can these be abrogated, eradicated, to make Islam fully consistent with Western values? But as it is codified in the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sirah, the biography of Muhammad, we've got some problems. Kenny Demeter, what are ways the average person can stand up against the woke madness without risking your livelihood. Well, I've discussed this on countless occasions, so I don't want to kind of repeat myself, and you can read the parasitic mind. Every single person has to modulate their risks in deciding how much they wish to speak out, how much risks they tolerate. I think it's not, not feasible to say, I don't want to risk my livelihood, therefore I will never speak out. Because that's exactly what happens with the tragedy in the commons, which I explained in the parasitic mind. Every single person diffuses the responsibility on, you know, Gatsad is a honey badger. He'll take care of it for us. And by the way, I receive a million requests to speak out on behalf of a particular issue. Why don't you speak out? Why is it incumbent on me to be your representative? I don't mean you, Mr. Demeter. I mean the person writing to me, right? You don't think I've had costs to bear? You know how many professorships I've lost? How many promotion? How many? I, I've, I've been refused the chair professorship now four years in a row. The people who have gotten it instead of me have one-tenth of my dossier, maybe less. But I know that I'm never going to get a chair professorship again. I've lost a lot of money because of that. I've had a higher teaching load because of that. I've lost professorships and dream locations because of that. I know that for a fact. 
because people write to me and say, oh, by the way, there was a group of people that didn't want you here. They should have a statue of me in those universities because I support the scientific method because I support science and reason and logic and individual liberty and individual freedoms and freedom of speech. Everything that should lionize someone, we live in an upside world where I am chastised for holding those positions. I've had a million death threats. I had to go into campus with, with security. I had to file a police report with the Montreal police accompanied by a university administrator because of the death threats I was receiving. I was getting anxiety attacks and in one case, a panic attack. I suffered, but I'm still standing here, right? So everybody has to decide how much of the burden they're willing to bear. What you can do is say, I'm not going to take any burden because, bruh, let someone else do it. I'm too weak. I'm too pathetic. I'm too afraid. I'm too cowardly. The guys who landed in Normandy on June 6, 1944, were not guaranteed. They weren't going to lose a job or, or be sanctioned at their job. They were going to, in all likelihood, lose their lives. And they said, hey, I'll sign up. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay. So if they can do that, we can each decide to speak out. And guess what? If we do all speak out, I'm telling you, by next Tuesday, the problem will be resolved. The problem is that cowardice is the eighth deadly sin of, of the human condition. So most people want to write to me and say, Dr. Saad, you're my hero. Please don't mention my name if you read this email on your show. Well, motherfucker, isn't that the reason why we are in this position? Because you can't even stand with next to the one publicly who's taking all the risks on your behalf. If I seem a bit... Uh, flummoxed it's because I've been doing this now for many many years and it it just drives me crazy to see that we are throwing away our children's future because of cowardice so thank you for that question Mr. Demeter Gary Brovetto what thoughts do you have about the percentage practicing therapists who themselves have serious psychological issues <laughs> well I don't so that's an empirical question you're asking do therapists uh, follow the distribution of mental illness in the general population. And I don't know uh, what the answer is. What I can tell you is that I had heard many years ago that the top three professions that suffer most suicide, I don't know if that data still holds, and I, I, I don't know if that, if that uh, reference was accurate or not, but I had heard in the past that the top three professions are... Uh, uh, the, the guys who do the, the aviator, what was that called? I'm, I'm forgetting my words. Uh, the guys who bring in the planes, I can't remember the word. I'm getting a brain freeze. Uh, what are they called? Somebody, can somebody write down the thing? I, anyways, whatever. The, the guys who handle the, the tower, the, uh, number one, uh, I'm in no particular order, number two, dentists, and number three, psychiatrists. Uh, and I can understand why, uh, I mean, Dentistry seems to me quite a physically laborious job. If you start losing your dexterity, then you lose your profession. Whenever somebody goes to see a dentist, it's, they fear you. They hate you. They don't want to be there. So it's not a very pleasant uh, reality. In the case of uh, oh, air traffic controllers, just hit me. air traffic control. When it comes to air traffic controllers, of course, they, they have great stress. You make a wrong call. Many people die. And of course, psychiatrists, one of the reasons why I didn't go into psychiatry 
or clinical psychology is because I didn't think that I had the personality to do it. Not that I wasn't empathetic or giving or altruistic. I am all those things. It's because I didn't think that I had the personality that could compartmentalize my personal and professional life. I couldn't imagine uh, hearing about some five-year-old who had been abused by her stepfather for eight years and then come home at night and hug my children and, and forget about it. It would haunt me. I knew that it would. And so I thought, I, I don't want to do that because I'll probably kill myself. So I don't know if therapists, now what I uh, suffer more than the general population, what I can tell you is that many therapists are full of shit because they don't adhere to the scientific method. Because, And that's one of the other reasons. I'll talk about this in my forthcoming book, A Recipe for the Good Life. One of the, one of the other reasons why I didn't go into clinical work is because a lot of this stuff is simply quackery. Now, not to imply that all therapy is not science-based, but a lot of the therapeutic approaches are completely guru-driven, okay? And being a very scientifically-minded person, I felt that, yeah, there's just too much bullshit going on there. You know, screen therapy and repression therapy and hypnotic ancestral Jungian therapy. Fuck off. All right, next. Mother June is back. Uh, I think this is the second time. What's the hottest topic in psychology right now? I couldn't tell you because there are so many. Just if you look at, for example, the the divisions of in psychology at the APA, American Psychological Association, I think the the division for consumer psychology, the one that I was a member of, I think was Division Twenty Three. They've now left the APA. Uh, but I'm, I'm in many areas. I'm in evolution psychology, consumer psychology, psychology of decision-making, cognitive psychology. But uh, there are so many divisions that it's hard for me to say in psychology in general. There's abnormal psychology. There's social psychology. There's cognitive psychology. There's uh, you know organizational psychology, personnel psychology, consumer psychology, uh, you know perception psychology. So it's, it's very, very hard to talk about a singular hot topic. Uh, so I can't really, but what I can tell you is that a growing number of people are coming around to seeing the value of incorporating evolutionary principles within their sub-disciplines of psychology. So that's a very good thing. People were going for another 18 minutes as it's come, has become uh, the tradition now. I go for two hours, which is very, very long. Uh, so we have 18 minutes. So if you want your questions read, please, and answered, please uh, consider contributing uh, through Super Chat. Uh, G. Nix, thank you for your contribution. Dr. Saad, what do you think of the ongoing conservative leadership election? I think Polivier will win, but increasingly appreciate Roman Barber's position and integrity. I don't know enough about either of these folks, which maybe is, sh- is shameful given that I'm Canadian. Uh, but uh, so I, I can't tell you. I don't like the fact that Polivier is a uh, uh, career politician. I mean, I think he's been. Uh, eyeing to be prime minister since he was maybe two years old. So I don't know anything else about him. But what I do know is that I despise career politicians. One of the things that was great about Donald Trump is that he had been very successful in in doing many other things before he decided, you know what, I, I want to do this. Uh, and by the way, that's how it used to be in the past when people would take a break from their careers. They, they, they were neurosurgeons, then they decided to go into politics, and then to go back to neurosurgery, right? 
uh, Mehmet Oz. I'm not saying whether you like him or not or whether I agree. Right? He's running for Senate uh, seat in Pennsylvania, but he's had a long, distinguished career as a cardiac thora- thoracic surgeon and as a TV personality. And now he decided, hey, I want to, I want to take a shot at this. Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can contribute. I like those types of politicians. But someone like Polivier, who's been trying to be prime minister since he was one and a half years old, uh, I don't like that. So, And I don't know anything else about his position. So I'm not making any statements about whether I agree with his positions. I just don't like that profile. Because that is a very, very big cue that he's going to be no different from anybody else. And he's going to come after my money, my brain, my personhood, my words, my humor, my book royalties, just like anybody else. So that's all I can say. All right, Linda Rainier is back. Thank you so much for your second contribution here. I've seen the argument that the right uses minorities as a token, so-and-so. I will listen to the to the argue or a trait or am I mistaken to clarify fire equals good, but you are wonderful either way. Uh, well, thank you for the last part. You're very kind to say that. I'm, I'm not sure, unfortunately, that I follow the other part. It was kind of broken up, so forgive me for not being able to answer it. I don't think it's the right that uses minorities as a token. It's it's usually the left, right? You know, Jews have to be good little Jews, Jewish boys and girls, and vote for Democrats. Otherwise, shut up, Jew. Black people are all a monolith. You all vote Democrats. So I think it's, by definition, the left, which is deeply mired in identity politics, right? They're the ones who promulgate identity politics. Uh I think it's them who use minorities as uh, a uh, callous uh, strategy of tokenism. So so there you go. But otherwise, thank you for your very kind words. Uh, moving on. Oh, we've got a Hebrew here. Shalom God. Which means thank you very much. Okay, moving on. Oh, you got all these asshole spammers. Okay, let me go back. Uh, today, I, I'm, I'm swearing more, but it's kind of fun. All right, uh, Linda, okay, we got you. Moving on. Uh, Elston D'Souza's back. Sorry, I'm a geneticist. Didn't mean to trigger you laugh out loud about evolutionary hypothesis. <laughs> Thank you. By the way, please don't think uh, that, uh, so maybe you're Dr. D'Souza. Uh, please don't uh, think that my being irate was directed at you, the, the triggering that you saw was at this just laughably imbecilic idea. And I'm not saying that you felt prey to that, uh, but that, come on, evolution is just, it's quack science. Now, of course, some people, by the way, I I communicated, not communicated, I had a couple of, one was a postdoc, one was a cognitive neuroscientist who were coming after me. I did a sad truth on these two idiots. They were just so impolite, so obnoxious, such little trolls, you know, it's, you know, everything that I've done in my career, 30 years as a as a scientist uh, who's published all kinds of papers and all kinds of prestigious journals, it's all bullshit because, you know, evolutionary psychology, it's pure quackery. I mean, it's, imagine how offensive that is. I mean, imagine someone who has spent their entire career going through incredibly rigorous peer review processes with incredibly bright editors and reviewers and colleagues. I mean, if I listed for you, you know, the leading evolutionary scientists that I hang out with i mean these are just profoundly serious scientists and then someone comes along and says brad you're full of shit you you know nothing so that's like saying oh chemistry that's fake science right 
Evolutionary psychology is simply the application of evolutionary principles to human behavior, to the human mind. So if you apply evolutionary theory to study the giraffe or to study the salamander's behavior or to study the iguana's behavior, you apply the exact same principles to study this other animal called humans. And I apply it in the context of economic behavior or consumer behavior and many other forms of behavior. So you're only demonstrating what a cretin you are when you say, oh, but come on, bro, evolutionary psychology, bullshit. It's unfalsifiable nonsense. So that's why I was triggered because it's one thing to have, you know, the, the average uh, guy who plays video games all day in his mom's basement say stupid stuff that he learned in some seminar in Oberlin. But it's another thing when your fellow academics say such stupid stuff. So that's why I was triggered. Uh, but please, I hope you didn't take offense. So but thank you for your uh, uh, additional information. And I'd love to know more about the genetics work that you do. By the way, there is a field called evolutionary genetics. So there you go. Uh, Nick van der Klok, Klok is back. Thanks, God. Your passion for science is very inspiring. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that. Science is so beautiful, right? I mean, science is the liberating epistemological mechanism by which we can understand the world. Science removes our personal identity shackles. There is no Lebanese Jewish way of doing psychology. There's just psychology. There is no indigenous way of doing science. There is only science. And so I'm passionate about science because it is the greatest epistemological breakthrough that the human mind has ever come up with. It has allowed us to see images 14 billion years ago in a, in a far, far away distant galaxy. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, right? So, by the way, that's one of the reasons to tie it back to earlier when someone said, you know, what, do you have any advice for what I should do? Follow something that gives you the passion that I am exhibiting now, that, that Mr. Van der Kolk was so kind to, to point to, that I'm passionate about science. I'm, I'm passionate about all these things that I do because I live a cerebral life. I live a life of intellectual landscapes. And, and so to the extent that I can impart that passion to others, hey, I'm winning. Uh, if you could go back in time and ask a question to an intellectual, who and what would that be? Oh, my goodness. Too many great intellectuals. It's, it's hard because I'm, as, I'm, as I'm trying to answer you, I'm thinking about, oh, would I ask this to Plato? Would I ask this to Freud? What would I ask this to Leibniz? Would I ask this to Laplace? Would I ask this to Darwin? I mean, I'm going to take the easy way out and say, you know, what was the, I'm, gonna, I'm speaking to Darwin and, you know, what was that moment where you thought you had now collected enough evidence to formulate your uh, theory of natural selection that, that led to the 1859 book on the origin of species. Maybe that would be it. Just to sit down with them and understand the, the, the epistemological mechanism. But remember, by the way, Darwin had literally done a nomological network of cumulative evidence that I described in the parasitic mind. I mean, he didn't call it that. But what did he do over many de decades? He collected all this data from geology, from comparative morphology, from anatomy, from uh, animal husbandry, from biodiversity, from geology, all of which put together made it incontrovertible that his theory was spot on. And so I would love to sit down with him and 
go through. I mean, I guess in a sense, I already know what he would say because of his books, but just sitting with him and talking to him about it would, I think would be a great thrill. Uh, all right, next. Guys, we've got nine minutes. You want to get your questions in, make sure to super chat me. Uh, Larry McFart, I'm going to guess that's a uh, made-up name. Dr. Saad, I'm, I'm 26, prior U.S. Navy. My wife was born in Baghdad. Uh, we would say Baghdad, but okay, Baghdad, Iraq, and lived through shock and awe. Her, oh, okay, I'm sorry to hear that. Her family fled Iraq to Jordan in 2006 because translators like my father-in-law were being hunted. Two super chats. I'm not sure what that means. Does that mean there's another one coming? Okay, so so far I don't see a question, so maybe it'll come up later. Uh, I hope that your father-in-law made it out. Thank you for his service. Thank you for your service. Uh, I have nothing but respect for the people who say I'm willing to serve to protect freedom so that we can have these conversations without worrying about our safety. So thank you, sir. Uh, Jeff Horton, Marine salute, sir. Oh, my goodness. Just as I said, and thank you. you you've given the largest contribution today. You know, I've, I've said this before and I will say it again. I receive, I'm, I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful for all of the love that I receive from so many people. But probably the ones that, I don't want to say excite me the most more than others because every single beautiful message, I take it to heart. I read all of them. I don't answer necessarily all of them because I don't have time, unfortunately. But when a Navy SEAL, when a Air Force mechanic, when a corrections officer, when a cop, when an FBI agent writes to me and somehow incorporates me into his brotherhood, Right, people have sent me, you know, uh, medals from from they were part of the army rangers or whatever. In some cases, I've even discussed it on a sad truth where this military person sent a whole bunch of stuff to my son. Uh, that touches me because I respect those folks. Unlike all those woke assholes who, you know, the military is made up of white supremacists. F off, right? We exist in the world today with our freedoms because. Heroes said, we're willing to go and fight to make sure that our descendants will continue to live in free societies. So it, I, you cannot imagine the, the pleasure I get when I receive these wonderful tributes and you know letters of support from the military. So thank you for all of your service. I love you all. All right, moving on. Larry McFart. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's the second super chat. Thank you so much for your second super chat. What is the best way to get the message through to people that actual violence and wrongs in reality are things like this, not this woke oppression and offense ideology? And they are also Muslim. Food, food question, Cuba or Dalma? Okay. There's a lot of stuff here I'm trying to unpack. What is the best way to get the message through to people that actual violence and wrongs in reality are things like this? Oh, you, I, I think what you're saying is, Actual violence, actual like for you to be considered a victim, you, you have to go through actual trials and tribulations rather than all this woke, fake offense. Uh, if that's what you're asking, of course, I wholeheartedly agree. And I have a whole section in the parasitic mind where I talk about the homeostasis of victimology. The idea being that people are so desperate to be victims because that's how you ascend in the, in the hierarchy today, regrettably, not 
based on your accomplishments, but am I the biggest victim? That they will redefine what constitutes a, a an act of victimology in order to appear a victim. And if there was no victimology, then they'll construct, they'll fabricate an act, right? Like Jesse Smollett. So I hear you. Uh, the the ethos of victimology is grotesque. And especially for someone who went through the Lebanese Civil War, as I did that first year in the Lebanese Civil War, uh, I know what true victimology is, and it ain't the woke bullshit. Uh, food question. Uh, kibbe or... Okay, I think what, you, what you're writing, kubba, I think what you mean is we would say kibbe, uh, or dolma, meaning the... You mean the... Uh, we call them... Uh, what are arish, like... A, the stuffed wine leaves, if that's what you mean, because we call them something else. Uh, if that's what you mean, that's a tough one. And now, kibbe can come in many different fries. There's kibbe that's fried, or there is kibbe neye, which is, neye means raw. raw. So prob- probably uh, my favorite of these choices would be kibbe neye, which is a type of tartar with burhol uh, infused within it. But you can only eat it when it's very fresh with a butcher that you trust, because otherwise you're going to be spending a lot of time in the bathroom. So thank you so much, Mr. McFart, if that's your real name. Uh, moving on, we got three minutes left, so I'm going to maybe stop any new, just so I can get through any ones that are remaining. Back Health 101, thank you for your contribution. No question, just some dollars to offset taxes taken. <laughs> Thank you very much. You, you're, I'm very grateful for your uh, donation, but you're going to have to offer a lot, a lot, a lot more donations to offset what was stolen from me. And I got to tell you, I don't think I've ever experienced existential pain like I did when all my money was stolen. It's just, I mean, people are traumatized because someone mugs them for their watch. You can't imagine what it is to have your life's work completely stolen from you. It's unbelievable. I don't want to go down that alley, uh, but I, I want to answer any remaining persons. Uh, and so please don't don't post. I mean, I don't want to say don't, don't send any more donations, but uh, we want to wrap it up soon. Jan, thank you for your contribution. I spoke out, left Quebec Solitaire, Solitaire two years ago and wrote an article that went viral about it, got threats, lost friend. Scum purged itself. Go poly. Okay, well, I'm I'm glad that you activated your inner honey badger. You know, even if you hold positions that are contrary to my positions, I will respect you for at least having the courage of your convictions. So, kudos to you for having spoken out, uh, irrespective of what your political position is. So good, good for you. Uh, Larry McFart is back. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for calling out Sam Harris on his bull. I listened to him for a long time since early high school when I watched the Beyond Belief, Science, Religion, and Survival until he caught the Trumpism disease that he has. It is unbelievable how much I despise, not Sam, not Sam, but what has happened to Sam. That's why, by the way, I sat quietly for four years as he developed an incurable form of you know, Trump hatred. But then when I kind of started joking around and, you know, critiquing him in a satirical way he went ballistic he unfollowed me and so on and i thought that that was uh very small of him because i know him i've been on the show we've had dinner together we've communicating 
communicated by email many times. I consider him, you know, a, a distant friend. We're not close friends or anything, but I knew him well. I had great, great respect for many, many positions that he takes. Uh, you know, I would have considered myself, you know, a, 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 well, a fan is a strong word, but of, of Sam's. He, he's, he's written and said many great things. But then I had to call him out. Why? Because truth supersedes hurt feelings. So even though he was going to have hurt feelings, I felt that I owed my followers the truth. I tried to do it in a humorous, tactful way. He didn't take well to it. He unfollowed me. F him. So, yeah, uh, I appreciate you saying uh, that, you, that you appreciate that I went after him. I don't like bullshit. Where did okay? So I'm, we're almost out of time. Uh, so I just want to finish the remaining ones, and then we have to call it quits, guys. It's Shabbat coming up. I gotta get ready for a three-hour prayer. No, not true, but I do have to go soon. So we're almost out of time. Well, we are technically out of time, but I don't want to leave anybody hanging. So please, no more super chat donations. The only time you hear me saying that at the end of a show. Belinda Pullman. What do you think of the loneliness problem in the U.S. affecting mainly boys? How can we address this issue? Well, we can address it by not pathologizing half of humanity called being male, right? Toxic masculinity. You've literally taken a sexually reproducing species. I'm sorry, it's going to be transphobic what I say now. There's this thing called female. There's this thing called male. In a sexually reproducing species, they each have different gametes. We put them together. We create other people. This is called grade one biology. And therefore, we need both women and we need both men to have a sexually reproducing viable species. But then woke people come along and decide that half of humanity called boys, men, are diseased. We need to pathologize them because, you know, they're toxic by their nature. Hashtag the future is female. Well, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to have really bad downstream consequences. And so maybe I'll have more to say about this at some point. I already wrote a Psychology Today article on my Psychology Today column, which I no longer write that much there, uh, where I, I think the title was, Is Toxic Masculinity a, a Viable Concept or something to that effect? So you might want to check it out. What can be done about it? As I said, let's elevate all people, right? We no longer need to be allies to women at universities. They completely dominate in every goddamn field, right? I've already discussed. There used to be a time where there was institutionalized misogyny against women. That's called the past. Today, snapshot today, women dominate in the universities. My dean is a woman. My associate dean of research is a woman. My departmental chair is a woman. Most of the chair professors, professors in my department are women. But I receive emails all the time. How can we improve women's lot on campus? F off. We don't need to. We need to elevate all worthy people. Male, female, tall, short, purple, black, brown, transgender, cisgender. Treat people as individuals. There's your answer. Moving on. Kenny Demeter is back. No question. Just thank you for what I needed to hear. You're welcome. I'm glad I could help. Low rung Maslow. <laughs> okay. Victor Davis Hansen had a great quote on his site at one point via Shakespeare Edgar 
King Lear, okay? The worst is not so long as we can say, this is the worst. Thank you for what you do, Professor. Thank you. That's lovely. I appreciate that. Uh, I love Victor Davis Hanson. I had him on my show. I was able to get him to smile. I even have a quote. I don't know if it will stay in the final version of the my forthcoming book. I have a quote of his that he said on our show, at the last thing that he said uh, in our chat, where he said, you know, not, not enough academics smile. You smile a lot. It's wonderful. It's lovely. And I need to do it more. So thank you for that. Or something to that effect. I thought that was really lovely. Uh, so yeah, Victor is fantastic. Uh, I think we're done. Yes, we are. Let me just make sure. Let me just make sure. Yes, I've covered everybody. Hey guys, 504. So we went two hours and five minutes. Thank you so much. Tons of fun to all those who donated. Thank you to all those who didn't. Please consider doing so in the future. I really am looking for ways to monetize all of my content, all of my time, so that I could spend even more time doing all kinds of great things that I have in mind. But it's a question of time availability. The, the, the more time that I can free up by having the financial security to pursue these projects, the better it is. As you know, all my money was stolen by the Quebec and Canadian government. So many people think that I'm swimming in money. I'm hardly doing that. So it is important that you find ways to support those are on the front lines trying to make sure that your kids will have a good education. Thank you all so much. Have a great weekend. Uh, wish you nothing but love and peace and happiness. I'll talk to you soon. Cheers, everybody. Ciao.